Uh, today I want to talk to you about a purpose through the apocalypse, a purpose through the apocalypse. We're looking at Mark chapter 13. Uh, the truth of the matter is, at multiple times in our life, we will confront what appears to be the apocalypse. It appears to be the end of the world. When I was in fifth grade, I got my first serious girlfriend. Her name was Whitney, and she was the cutest girl at Begnerville Elementary. There was a close second, but she was by far, she was the cutest. And uh, we were really serious. We would hold hands on the playground when we played Red Rover, uh, and my hand would get super sweaty, but she, she kept holding on. And then we would call each other on the phone and not talk to each other. You remember those days where you just sat there with nothing to say, because as a fifth grader, there's not really a whole lot going on in your world. Uh, so it was a really, you know, super serious relationship. Well, one day I went to school, and Katie, uh, Whitney's best friend, she came up to me, and she says, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Whitney is breaking up with you because she wants to date your best friend, Greg. And uh, it hurt me, real cut me super deep. But there was one hope for me. Uh, Whitney had a twin sister named Nicole. And so she was the second cutest girl at Begnerville Elementary. And so I thought, if I can't have Whitney, then I'll settle for Nicole. And I went to Nicole and I said, will you be my girlfriend? And she said, ew, no. And at that point, I felt like the world was ending. I did. It, it felt like the end of the world for me. 9-11, the day after 9-11, it felt like it was the beginning of the end of the world. Uh, COVID, when you saw people... On TV, dropping dead in the streets of China, what appeared to be a cataclysmic, apocalyptic event. And it felt like it was the end of the world. We've all been there. It was a diagnosis, or it was something financial, or something relational, and it felt like your world was coming to an end. And the disciples, we're studying a passage right now in which the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, they felt the same kind of way. Uh, you see, uh, we are studying... Uh, Jesus and his disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives. They're overlooking the temple. This is the end of a day, a long, long day, in which Jesus had spent the entirety of the day condemning the self-righteous Jewish ruling class, the people that were tasked by God to produce an abundant harvest that would uh, result in righteousness for all of mankind, uh, that they would draw the world to God as their Savior. And instead of producing an abundant harvest, they produced a stinking crop. And in their hypocrisy, in their self-obsession, in their self-serving way of leading, they despised and rejected God's one and only Son, the Savior of the world, the promised King, the Messiah. And for all of that, Jesus condemns the self-righteous Jewish ruling class. And in condemning him, in condemning them, Jesus says, Jerusalem, the holiest city on the world, and the temple, the holiest place in the world, will be completely and utterly destroyed. Now, this news felt like the end of the world to the disciples because in their understanding uh, of the unfolding of history, they thought that Jerusalem and especially the temple played an integral part in the way that God was going to restore and redeem humanity, the way God was going to fix all this mess. It was tied up into the temple. And so for the, the fact that the temple, the temple was going to be torn to the ground, not one stone left upon another, this was bad, bad news. It felt like it was the end of the world. Now, in situations like that, in, in uh, Western Christianity, we've all been programmed to have a pessimistic outlook of the unfolding of history. And so we watch our news, uh, the news channel, we watch our Twitter feed, we watch the Facebook feed, we hear stories from people, and, and we put all these things together. And in our mind, in our mind, we say, well, this is the beginning of the end of the world. This is the beginning of the destruction of the world. And we have a pessimistic look of 
the way history is going to unfold. And so wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and pandemics, these are all signs that the world will come to a destructive and deadly end. But Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 13, I preached about this last Sunday, that that's not really the right way to think about these apocalyptic type of events. He says to his disciples, all these things must happen. And here's the reassurance for all of us today. As you're scrolling through your, your feeds, as you're paying attention to what's going on in the news, as you see what appears to be the world unfolding around you, we, we are reminded that all of these things fit into the plan and purpose of God. That God has promised us that he will work all things out for the good of those who love him. And so Jesus says, this is not, this is not the end. I know it looks like the end. It feels like the end. This is not the end. This is actually the beginning of what he calls labor pains. And so Jesus is telling us, history doesn't culminate in this destructive and deadly disease. Instead, all of these painful signs that we're confronted with day in and day out, they are labor contractions through which we will deliver the world into a better and brighter age that results in new life. It is important, my friends, that we have an optimistic outlook of the unfolding of history so that we don't fall into despair and despondency and we miss God's plan and purpose for us through these cataclysmic events and times. And that's our theme for today. I'd ask all of you to rise as we read God's word. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. But you, Jesus says, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations so that when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we all come together, we close our eyes, we bow our heads, and we declare as boldly, as bravely, as loudly, as forcefully as we can today that you are God and we are not. And so we submit to you, your will, your way, your authority in our lives, in every single area, Lord. Come today and speak through me. I'm a sinner. I'm only saved by your grace. I'm no better than any person that's sitting in this room. I'm no better than any person that's watching online. These people don't need anything from me. Lord, we need a word from you. And so please, Lord, have your way in this place. Have your way in this moment. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment and, and pray for the people around you. Pray for those that are watching online. Pray for those in this world that are hurting. If you know somebody by name, pray for them. Pray for all the other churches here in Winchester that they be blessed and bring God glory this morning. Take a moment and pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 13, verse 9. 
Uh, Jesus says, uh, be on your guard to his disciples. They're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus just predicted the temple in Jerusalem would be totally destroyed. And so things are going to get bad. They're going to get really, really bad. It's going to feel like the end of the world. And Jesus says, as we enter into this season that it's getting more and more difficult and, and things just go from bad to worse, I want you, my disciples, to be on your guard. He uses a Greek word, blepo. Blepo. And this is a word that's got a whole lot of... Um, very important characteristics to it. Oftentimes when it's used in the New Testament, it's a word that means to see. Uh, but it's not just to see like with physical eyes. It's, it's to see the physical situation, understanding the spiritual implications. That's the way this word is used. And so Jesus is saying, when the world looks like it's collapsing around you, they will hand you over to local courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogue and you'll stand before governors and kings. All this bad stuff is happening to you. Have spiritual eyes to see what is actually happening. Because in the physical realm, it's going to feel like you're losing. In the physical realm, it's going to feel like everything's falling apart. But I want you to see what's really going on is there's a spiritual battle. Jesus says this is all happening, not because you've made a mistake, not because you've chose the wrong path, not because you're unlucky. All these things are happening because of me. You see, there is a cosmic, a spiritual, an unseen battle that is going on, that is taking place, and you, my disciples, are on the front line, Jesus tells us. So don't feel like you're being punished, Jesus says. Don't feel like you've made a mistake. God wants you to be right where you are. What would change about your life if you realize in every situation that I'm in, God wants me to be right where I am. He's got a plan and a purpose for me even now, even here. What would change about your life? God said, Jesus says, you're to be my witnesses to all of them, to testify to the people of the most authority, to the kings and the queens and the governors in front of the largest possible audience that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the, that's the purpose. That's why you're going through all this. Verse 10. Well, actually, let me say this. Jesus is warning his disciples here of what's going to happen over the next 40 years. He, he tells them this in AD 30, AD 70, uh, the Romans sweep in, they destroy Jerusalem. During that season, there's going to be a whole lot of persecution against Jesus' people. Between the time of Jesus' ascension and the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, they're going to be arrested, they're going to be taken before kings and, and governors, and they're going to be flogged in the synagogues, all sorts of bad things are going to happen. And Jesus is warning them ahead of time so that they won't be deceived and they won't be alarmed so that they can be his witnesses even through the persecution. They won't lose sight of what the plan and purpose is in all this. So uh, just a few months after this, uh, we read in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are healing and preaching Jesus Christ. They're healing in Jesus' name. They're preaching Jesus Christ, the resurrected king. The same men who had Jesus arrested were annoyed that Peter and John were out in the streets proclaiming Jesus Christ is alive, and so they had them arrested. And so this was a, a contentious, this was a, a sign uh, of exactly what Jesus said would happen. In A.D. 64, about 30-some-odd years after Jesus made this statement, uh, the whole city, or one-third of the city of Rome burned all the way to the ground. The emperor at that time was Nero. Turns out history tells us that Nero actually burned this, the third of the city of Rome down because he wanted to rebuild Rome. And before the flames were even extinguished, before the smoke had settled, he had already uh, delivered over the plans for the rebuilding of the city. So this was all part of his plan. But that wasn't good uh, political, uh, you know, 
site there. So he had to, he had to come up with somebody to blame. Now, in the Roman Empire, it was very easy and convenient to blame the Christians for all the bad things that happened. And so they would say of the Christians that they're atheists because the Roman people, they worshiped a pantheon of gods. They had gods on top of gods, whereas Christians only worshiped one god. And so the Romans would say of the Christians, you are atheists. And then they would say of the Christians, you're cannibals because you eat the body and blood of your Savior. They didn't understand the symbolic nature of that. And then they would say of Christians, you're sexually deviant because you don't go to the prostitutes at the temple. Instead, you only sleep with your spouse. And that's super weird. And so all of these wars, all of these earthquakes, all these fires, all these famines, the gods are mad at us. They're punishing us because of you Christians. And if you guys would just do what we do, or if you guys would cease to exist, then we would be blessed and then we would be prosperous. So Nero began an intense persecution of the Christians. It was convenient for him to blame the fire on them, and it was convenient to him for him to single out the Christians because they lived a distinct life. He would light them, pour pour oil all over them, and catch them on fire, tie them to a stake, and they would be kind of like a flame or a candlelight for Nero's dinner parties. They would put animal skins on them, doused in blood, and then they would let them out loose in the Colosseum, and then they would let wild uh, and hungry lions come and devour them, eat them alive for everybody's amusement in the Colosseum. So this is what was happening to Christians, just like Jesus said it would happen. And here's the truth. This pattern of negatively singling out Christians continues to this day, does it not? In 2012, a gay couple went to the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. Any of y'all remember this? They wanted a cake made to celebrate their homosexual union. This man that owned the uh, cake shop, his name's Jack Phillips, Christian man, he refused to make a cake honoring homosexual marriage. He said it was an abomination according to the scriptures. He wasn't gonna do it. And so this gay couple, they, they took him to court over it. The courts in Colorado ruled in favor of the gay couple. Went all the way to Supreme Court, they turned the decision around. What's interesting about this is around the same time, there was a Christian man who went to three separate bakeries. You probably didn't hear about this. And he wanted a cake made that said homosexuality is an abomination. That's what he wanted on his cake. Leviticus chapter 19. Three different bakeries refused to make a cake. They said it was offensive. We're not going to do it. He took them to court. The same people, the same courts that ruled against the Christian baker who didn't want to make a homosexual cake, they ruled in favor of all the bakeries who refused to make a cake that uh, condemned homosexuality. To this day, to this day, As Jesus warned his disciples, especially as things get more and more difficult, Christians will be singled out and persecuted. Jesus promises us that. Verse 10, why is all this happening? Jesus says, it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. You remember Jesus, the night leading up to his betrayal and his crucifixion, he told his disciples, it is necessary that the Son of Man be crucified. They wanted to fight against it. They wanted to try to stop it. And Jesus said, no, 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 you can't stop it. Don't stand in the way of this. It's necessary. It must happen this way. Paul was arrested because he was preaching Jesus. He was arrested and he was beaten. And then he was put in chains and he was put on a ship that was destined for Rome. He was going to stand trial before Nero and possibly, possibly be executed. I told you this last week. Paul says to the people, this ship is breaking up and, and the people are freaking out. And Paul says, don't worry, 
don't worry, all these things are necessary because I must stand before Caesar and give an account of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples here, all this stuff, it is necessary that the gospel be preached. The wars, the earthquakes, the famines, the arrests, the shipwreck, even the cross is all part of God's plan and purpose. You see, the pain, the problems, the persecution that we experience in this world, it provides for us a platform from which we can preach the gospel more clearly to a larger audience. That, that the gospel be preached to all the nations. And so when you're going through these trials and these tribulations, understand it's not just about the trials and tribulations. God is actually elevating your voice. He's elevating your testimony so that you can more clearly preach his goodness and glory to all the world. The gospel, Jesus says, must be preached. Why? To accomplish what? God's desire is that none perish, but all receive eternal life. God's desire is that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the face of the earth. God's desire is that his goodness and glory will fill the earth and subdue it. Jesus prayed, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel must be preached so that heaven may come down. How will this happen? Last week, there was a mass shooting in Buffalo. A self-professed white supremacist went into a predominantly black neighborhood and shot up a grocery store, killed 10 people, injured more. Absolutely despicable evil from the pits of hell action. Amen? Terrible. In the aftermath, as it often is the case, and rightfully so, there's a conversation about how do we solve this kind of behavior? And so there's all sorts of ideas that are thrown out. Maybe we need to pass stricter gun laws. If, if they, we just didn't have any guns, then that would solve the problem. Maybe we need more social workers. Instead of police, we need more social workers to deal with these people that are acting this crazy way. Maybe we need to arm the clerks more uh, more heavily. Maybe they need body armor and they need automatic weapons. Maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need more uh, critical race theory training so that we can do away with white supremacy. Okay, so let's pause and let's just say all those things happen. Let's, play, let's say we legislate uh, and magically all the guns and all the ammunition in America will just evaporate. Okay, let's just, let's just pretend that's possible. And let's pretend that we put social workers on every single corner in America. And let's pretend that we, um, we train everybody in every school uh, with what's called diversity and inclusion training, education. Let's say we do that and we eradicate white supremacy. Have we solved the problem? See, if we take all the guns away, guess what? They won't use guns they'll use knives. If we take all the knives away, they won't use knives, they'll use stones. And if we take all the stones and rocks away, they won't use stones or rocks, they'll use sticks. And if we take all the sticks away, they'll use their fists. And if we eradicate white supremacy, we still have other kinds of supremacy, don't we? The same day that there was a shooting in Buffalo, did you know there was a mass shooting, an attempted mass shooting in California? Did you know this? There was a, a man who was a self-professed Chinese supremacist, went into a Taiwanese church and locked the door behind him, and he was going to wipe out everybody except for somebody 
uh, subdued this guy before he could do much damage. And so if we don't have white supremacy, we'll have Chinese supremacy, or we'll have Mexican supremacy, or we'll have other, some other kind of supremacy. Because here's the truth of the matter, friends. We don't have a gun problem. We don't have a race problem. We don't have a baby formula problem. These are all symptoms of the real problem we have. We have a sin problem. We have a sin problem, and there's only one solution to a sin problem. You're not going to legislate away a sin problem. You're not going to stimulus check away a sin problem. You're not going to do any other thing to to move away a sin problem. The only solution to a sin problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Are you ashamed of the gospel this morning? I'm not. I am not. I will unapologetically, unashamedly say to every single problem that we ever face in this world that Jesus Christ is the answer. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed, because Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, not in some spiritual, ethereal way, literally, physically, spiritually, relationally, financially, in every way you can imagine, Jesus Christ is the savior. He is the savior of the world, and he is mighty to save. There is nothing that my God cannot do. Whom the Son sets free is free, not spirit, not just spiritually, not just ethereally, not just some metaphysical place. He is free Indeed. And so, friends, the utopia that these progressive leftist socialists are trying to bring us into is the same heaven that all of our hearts are crying out for. They're not mistaken in desiring that place. That's not the problem. The problem is the mechanism by which they want to get us to that place is all messed up because there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to that perfect place where everything is as it should be and nothing could be better. And that's when every knee bows and every tongue confesses and every person and every institution and everything else in all creation admits and confesses and professes that Jesus Christ is Lord. If only the church believed that. I think we'd be just as vocal about Jesus as we are our favorite politician and political opinions. I think if we really believed that, we'd be just as bold about the gospel as many people are bold about selling their Zija products. I think if we really believe that Jesus Christ is the solution to all the world's problems, we'd be just as excited about a sinner coming to salvation as we are some recruit coming to our favorite athletic program. Then and only then, my friends, when we really believe what Jesus is telling us, then and only then will the world be changed. The gospel must be preached. Now, here's the question. Why aren't you preaching it? I don't think it's because you you don't believe what I'm telling you. All of you, you've seen it in your own life that Jesus Christ changes everything. You know that. In your bones, you know it. Why aren't you preaching it? I think it's because you're scared. I think it's because you're afraid that you're going to look stupid. I think it's because you're afraid that you're not going to have all the answers. 
I think it's because you're afraid of what people will say or think or do because you stand for Jesus. Well, if that's you this morning, I got good news for you. The disciples probably felt the same way because they were fishermen. They weren't educated. You see, in Jewish culture, they would do education up to a certain point. And then they had these aptitude tests. And if you, didn't pa- if you didn't pass this aptitude test, then basically you couldn't go on any farther. The people that went on farther, they became the rabbis. They became the Pharisees. They became like the elite educational, professional people in the culture. Uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they didn't make the cut. And so they went and they fished with their daddies. Okay, so these are men who their society has said, you're not smart enough. You're not well-spoken enough. You're not a good enough reader. You're not a good enough writer. You're not, a good, you're not good enough with logic. You're not good enough with reason. And so if you feel inadequate to preach the gospel, I'm sure the disciples did too, but look at what Jesus says to them, verse 11. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, don't worry about what you'll say. Don't worry about what they'll think. Don't worry about what they'll do. The Holy Spirit will give you everything you need when the time comes. So Peter and John out there, they're preaching in the street. They're healing people. They're saying Jesus Christ is alive, and they get arrested. And so they have to stand trial in front of the same people that convicted Jesus to death in the same room in which they convicted Jesus to death. Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? Peter didn't back down. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he preached the gospel. Acts chapter four, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the answer to all the problems, Peter says. Verse 13, when they observe, these are, these are the people that had Jesus killed. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I pray today that many of you are inspired to be more bold and more brave and more vocal about your faith. Please do not allow your lack of training your lack of a quote-unquote testimony. I hear this all the time. Well, you know, I grew up in the church. That's all I've ever known, so I don't have a testimony. Don't let that stop you from telling what God is doing in your life. Don't let it stop you. Don't allow your stuttering problem. I'm not well-spoken. I don't know big words. Don't allow any of that to stop you. Don't let it hold you back from telling the world that there is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. You see, it isn't the persuasiveness of our words. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that saves the sinner and changes the world. But friends, understand up front, it's gonna cost you something. Jesus says this, verse 12, Mark chapter 13, brothers will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. It's exactly what happened over the next 40 years in in, uh, the disciples' lives. Between AD 30 and AD 70, uh, first century Christians became a public security threat in the Roman Empire because Christians declared Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this was political language uh, because the Roman, the Roman uh, Empire, they had a slogan that said, Caesar is Lord. And so when you say Jesus Christ is Lord, you're excluding Caesar from being Lord. This was a political statement. Problem 
uh, for the Jewish people is Rome, as they're persecuting Christians, they view Christians as a public security threat, as a threat to the empire. Romans couldn't tell a difference between Jewish people and Christian people. They thought Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. And so what happened is the Jewish people, they got really passionate about disassociating themselves from the Christians. They said, I don't want to be associated. I don't want you guys to get us confused. I am not a Christian. I'm Jewish. And so if a Jewish person were to surrender their life to Christ and be baptized, many times the people in that family, that immediate family, who this Christian person would then go and try and evangelize, many times these Jewish people would turn them over to the authorities. This was a way to protect because the Jewish people in this time, they had special privilege in the Roman Empire. They were the only people that weren't forced to uh, worship uh, the emperor as God. And so they were scared that this privilege was going to be taken away from them because of the Christians. And so they tried to expose the Christians, and they would turn them over. So brother turned over brother. Father turned against son. Children turned against parents, just like Jesus said would happen. Verse 13, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Everyone, like every type of person, Roman, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Jesus said, if you are associated with me, if you preach the gospel, you will be hated. I saw this tweet this last week. This uh, this, uh, lady named Joe Lumen. I think that's how you would say her name. She is a self-professed, what does she call herself? A decolonizing theologian. Just don't even Google it, okay? It's not worth your time. This is what she said. I'd rather get an abortion than have a brown child who ends up being adopted by white evangelicals. It's not a kindness to children of the global majority to give them to people who will traumatize them with self and ancestral hatred. An abortion is an act of love. She said, I would rather kill my unborn baby than to allow them to grow up in a Christian person's home. What in the world did y'all do to this lady to make her hate you so much? Isn't that crazy? Why is that? Why would would people act like that? The darkness in sinners hates the light of Christ in you. This woman wants to have sex with whatever she wants to have sex with. And she wants to be able to have the right to rip whatever sort of offspring out of her womb that she wants to without feeling any sort of conviction from people like you. That's what she wants. Jesus never said following him would be easy. He never promised that your life would be perfect or that you would become popular. Jesus actually promised, he said, in this world you will have what? Trouble. Jesus actually promised, if you associate with me in this world, you will be hated. And so, Christians, we have to mature beyond this place, this obsession, this aspiration that we be universally liked. We have to mature beyond that. And it's not biblical. Now, this may come to a shock to many of you, but I am not the most popular preacher in town. This may come to a shock. I don't see what's so funny about it. A few years ago, I came to the conclusion through a lot of prayer and some, some trials that I went through in my life 
that I would no longer worry about optics. I am not a politician, and I don't need anybody's vote. So I just said, who, were, who cares about any of that? And I, now, I'm not here to try and tick, tick people off. That's not my goal at all. I actually do not like, I do not appreciate my name being slandered around town. I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy confrontation. I don't enjoy these things. But my primary ambition is to preach the gospel. To call sinners to repentance and call saints to holiness, even if that means that I offend people, even if that means I'm hated by some. Now, if you show me a preacher who is universally liked, I will show you a preacher who isn't adequately preaching the gospel. Don't compromise or capitulate the gospel to appease godless people. Because the truth of the matter is, you could poop golden eggs and they would still find a reason to hate you just because of your association with Jesus Christ. You like that analogy. Because this is what Jesus Christ stands for. He says, I am the king of kings and I am the Lord of lords. This whole universe belongs to me. Submit to my authority and be saved. Sinners don't want to submit to authority of Christ. And as a self-defense mechanism, they will hate you to not hear the gospel. Jesus says, hated, beaten, betrayed, trials, tribulation, through the pain, through the problems, through the persecution, don't you dare quit because this task is too important. This is what this is all about. Jesus is telling us what the apocalypse, what the end, what feels like the end, what it's gonna look like and all the details surrounding because he doesn't want you focused on the persecution. He doesn't want you focused on the problems. He wants you focused on preaching the gospel. He says, those who endure to the end will be saved. That's the theme of the whole book of Revelation. You realize that? That's the theme. Persevere to the one who overcomes will receive the crown of life. That's the theme of Mark chapter 13. Don't despair. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Preach the gospel. Endure to the end. You will be saved. Those who persevere prove their loyalty. No matter what may come, no matter how difficult life may be, these people who persevere, they can be sure that in the end, God will save them, God will restore them, God will reward them. You see, God knows the real ones from the fake ones. And this is how. The fake ones quit. The real ones will not quit. No matter how, life, how hard life gets, the real ones won't shut up about Jesus no matter how heavy the persecution. Peter stared his judge square in the face. They were arrested, Peter and John arrested. They, they preached the gospel. Uh, the, his, the people that arrested him, they were amazed. They said, we know he's been with Jesus. He doesn't back down. He says, the Christ whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. He is the only means of salvation. That's what he said to the people that had Jesus killed. That's bold. That's brave. That's what Christ has called us to. Their accusers, there in, in the, uh, this place where they're holding the trial, their accusers, they threatened them. They said, if you don't shut up about Jesus, what we did to him will do worse to you. Now, they, they couldn't find any means to hold him illegally, so they had to let him go. Upon letting him go, Peter, uh, first, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, 
They said, you need to shut up about Jesus. And this is what they said to him. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They released them. Immediately they left that place and they found their friends and they told them what had happened. Their friends all got together and they started to pray. They recorded their prayer, Acts chapter four, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. And so this is what they're doing. They're affirming, God, you have authority over all of this. This This whole world is in your hands. You can do whatever you want. Now, you would expect them, after this intense trial, they, square, they looked death square in the face, a painful, torturous death. You would expect them to pray, Lord, rescue us from the persecution. Isn't that what you'd expect them to pray? Rescue us from this world that has fallen apart. Isn't that what you'd expect them to pray? Look what they prayed, verse 29. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness not protection, not rescue. Lord, give me boldness because the gospel must be preached. Empower me by the Holy Spirit to preach your word. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand, they continue to pray for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. May it be the same for us in this place today. Look through the trials and the tribulations. See the high calling the Lord has placed on your life. Push through the pain and the problems and boldly proclaim on this platform of persecution the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, for the redemption of humanity, for the betterment of the world in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, shake this place today. Shake us out of our complacency. Shake us out of our apathy. Shake us out of our despair and possess us with the Holy Spirit, with a fire in our bones that cannot be contained, with a conviction that cannot be denied, with signs that make it clear that we have been with Jesus, that we may speak the word of God boldly and change Winchester for your glory and for the good of these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. I ask you today, aren't you glad for Peter and James that they didn't back down in that moment? The first sign of persecution facing the same people that had Jesus tortured and killed, they didn't back down. And when they left from that place, they didn't ask for rescue. They didn't run for the hills. Instead, they said they prayed for boldness. Aren't you glad for them? Aren't you glad for the first Christian martyr? Just a few months later, Stephen's preaching the gospel in the city of Jerusalem, and all these Jewish people came against him and said, if you don't shut up, you're gonna ruin this for everybody. And they stoned him to death. Peter get, or uh, Stephen gets on his knees, and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then peacefully, he went to sleep, and he ascended to heaven. Aren't you grateful for Stephen? Aren't you grateful for the people who have endured all sorts of persecution and all sorts of nasty name calling and all sorts of threats against their life to fight for the lives of the innocents over the last 50 years in our country? Aren't you grateful for those people who didn't take no for an answer, who didn't care that they were being called all sorts of names because they were standing for what was right in God's eyes? Aren't you glad for those people? Aren't you glad for the person in your life who kept tapping you on the shoulder, who kept calling you on the phone, who kept texting you, who kept coming to your house every Sunday morning and saying, you gotta come to church with me. 
You got to know this Jesus that has changed my life. And they wouldn't take no for an answer. Aren't you glad for that person in your life? Let me ask you a question today. Is there anybody glad for you? Is there anybody in your life that you won't take no for an answer? You're going to preach the gospel to them, even if it hurts their feelings, even if you lose a friend, because this task is too important. The stakes are too high. I pray today that many of you are cut to the heart. And as you're standing there, there's a person that comes in your mind that God compels you. He convicts you. He won't let you leave this week without you telling them about Jesus. And as we sing this song, my prayer for you is that you'll close your eyes and you'll bow your head and you'll begin praying for that person, that God will give you boldness, that God will make sure your life matches your testimony. He will empower you by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to all those you love for their good and for God's glory. Will you do that today? As we sing this song, this is an opportunity to be prayed for. If you're here today and you're carrying a heavy load, I got great news for you. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And there is nothing he can't save you from. And so if you will come and submit to him, this is what I believe he'll begin working in your life. And you'll begin to see a change. He can do it, whatever it is. If you're here today and you're far from God, listen to me. Your God is your stomach. It's your appetite. It's your desires. It's your fleshly pleasures. And your destiny is destruction. There is only one way to salvation. And that is to surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, if you do that, if you do that, You will be blessed, not just in this life, but for eternity. God will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If that's you today, please come and talk to me. As we sing this song, come.